As we go to the Lord's table today, would you turn with me to Romans 15 for just a minute? I want to draw your attention. to something in the text. We're talking about Christian liberty. Um, These are the verses that we're studying in the worship service today. Um, But he talks about how we are to live in harmony with one another. There around verse 5. And then he says in verse 6, that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant. So what we're going to see here is, you know, we're talking about Christian liberty and we're talking about our rights. But what we see is Christ laid aside his rights to become a servant for us. And he sets out that great example to us. Uh, We are to serve one another. And so he says, I tell you, Christ became a servant to the circumcised. It's the Jewish people. And then he gives us three reasons. Number one, first reason Jesus became a servant is to confirm the promises that God had made to the fathers, to the patriarchs, which would be who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made promise to them, and God always fulfills his word, and God always keeps his promise, so Jesus becomes a servant to keep God's promise. Secondly, in order that the Gentiles, or excuse me, the first one was to show God's truthfulness, and God's truthfulness is shown by confirming the promises given to the patriarchs. And then the last one is this. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So God becomes, Christ becomes a servant to the Jewish people, to the circumcised. To show God is trustworthy, he is truthful, to confirm the promises and then to bring all of us into his family as his children, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And so that's why he goes back to the other verse when he says, so that with one voice, with one voice, Jew and Gentile, one voice, we can glorify God the Father and Jesus Christ. And so he says then, and this will be our sermon next week, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing. And sing. Why do we sing? We sing because God has shown us mercy. It puts within the heart of the child of God a desire to sing. What does it mean to sing? What is this thing? Singing. Music. And so we're going to talk about that. But, you know, it is a wonderful thing to just focus our attention this morning as we go to the Lord's table. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, becomes a servant to confirm the promises, 
to show God is faithful and to bring us. To show us that God is merciful. His mercy was extended to us in his death. Jesus Christ, God's very son, lays down his life. Dying willingly, no one takes his life. He lays it down. And he does it in my place and in yours to show us mercy. So come to the table today. Jesus told us that as often as we come to this table, we proclaim his death, his burial, his resurrection. We proclaim his mercy. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, even if you're new to our church, if you're visiting with us today, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've accepted him to be your Lord and Savior, we invite you to partake together with us so that with one voice, we can glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. And then while the music is being played, um, as we've been doing, you can slip to the front. Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, we're going to look at the first paragraph of this chapter. We've been in the book of Romans for a long time. We're getting down to the concluding portions of it. As we finish the subject of Christian liberty, we'll then be just getting into a section where the Apostle Paul deals with a lot of personal things. He's giving a lot of personal information about himself and about his ministry, about those whom he has ministered to. And so it would be much less doctrinal even, um, and, and just be very relational. And I think from that section, which sometimes gets passed over because it's at the end of the book of Romans and because of the nature of it, um, there's just some tremendous truths in this next section that we get to in relationship to relationships within the church and the importance of people and how Paul viewed people and how Paul viewed the ministry. We're going to finish this portion here where he talks about Christian liberty. I want us just to read this first paragraph together, then we'll look to the Lord in a word of prayer, ask his blessing on his word today. He's, he's bringing this whole thought to an apex, to a conclusion. And, and I think this first verse that he says this truth in verse 1 of chapter 15 is just kind of like the fundamental ethos, the fundamental ethic of the Christian life. It's so, is, it's so exemplified in the life of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so bound up in Him. And yet it is so hard for us. In the flesh, it's just like against everything. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings. Failings. How do you deal with it when someone fails you? Someone lets you down. Someone comes up short. 
We who are strong owe something. The word obligation, there was a very strong word. You remember in chapter 13 he says, Owe no man anything but to love him. We have a debt. To love others. Other than that, we're not to owe people anything. Right? He says, just don't owe anybody anything. But here he says, we have an obligation. We owe something. What is it we owe to each other? The strong or the bear. Not just with the weaknesses of the weak, with the failings of the weak. The failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us, notice the word each. That's a word in the Greek language that stresses individuality. Not just all of us, but each of us. Let each one of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. That's the great example. This thing is not about business 101. It's about what? Christ 101. It's about Christ. What did Christ do? The church is about Christ. Christ did not please Himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The reproaches. Jesus bears not only our sin, the sin our failings, he also bears the reproach that our sin deserves. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we should have hope. And then he's bringing this together in verse 5. Notice the word may. This is a plea, this is a prayer. It's a petition. He's turning from us and he's turning to God. It's like he's talked to us about this, now he's talking to God about this. And he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you. This is my prayer, he says. My prayer for the church is that God, the God of endurance and encouragement, would give us something What he would give us is to live in such harmony with one another. Now, I'm no musician. I like to sing, but I'm no musician. I think I can sing the melody, but I can't sing harmonies. I love to hear good harmony, though. Somebody who can do it right, knows how to do it, It's interesting, he doesn't say so that we would all sing melody. No, he says so that we would all harmonize. So we don't all sing the same part. And and that's why this is so so many times so difficult in the church, because different people are singing different parts, but it's supposed to harmonize together. And so we bring a harmony, we come into harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together with one voice, we are harmonizing as we glorify the Godfather of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then he ends, just as he began in chapter 14, when he said in chapter 14, verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Welcome him. And then he ends this section with the same thing. Therefore, welcome one another. Receive one another. How? As Christ welcomed you. How did Christ welcome you? With all your flaws and all your failings. How did Christ welcome me? With all my flaws and with all my failings. And I came to him in simple childlike faith and I received him. And he welcomed me. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And why do we do that? For the glory of God. Now, let's consider some things about this subject of Christian liberty that we've been looking at. The first thing that we could just say, one of the important truths about Christian liberty that we have seen as we've gone through this is that really the filter through which we filter everything as a Christian is the glory of God. Do everything to the glory of God. And so when I'm thinking about my decisions, when I'm thinking about how I live my life, Uh, The the paramount question that I want to ask is, can I do this thing to the glory of God? If I can't do it to the glory of God, then, eh, shouldn't do it. My attitude is not to the glory of God, eh, I need an attitude check. Seek your neighbor's good, serve him. Seek your neighbor's good, serve him. This is the main point that we see all through this, is Jesus Christ served us, and we are to seek our neighbor's good, and we are to serve him. It's not just about me. It also says here we are not to put a stumbling block in front of our brother. We are not to cause an offense. We should not set in front of our brother an occasion to sin. And so Paul said in the text, I'm not going to eat meat. I'm not going to drink wine. I'm not going to do anything that will cause my brother to sin. And so that is the core decision that we look at. It's not whether or not I have the right to do something. It's not about that. It's about whether or not what I'm going to do is going to cause my brother to sin. That's what I'm asking myself. He says, don't judge one another. God will be the judge. Remember that? We talked about the judgment seat. He says, each of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So who are you to judge Another man's servant, he said. So don't judge one another. Let God do that. God will be the judge. And so he says at the beginning and at the end, welcome one another. Receive one another. Receive one another. And so this is what we're talking about with Christian liberty. I'm reading a book about Winston Churchill. I love to read books about Winston Churchill. Reading a big book about him written by a guy named... Uh, William Manchester, during the Second World War. We're talking about judging here for just a minute. And remember how Jesus said, you know, don't judge anyone. He said, take the little speck out of your own eye. Or, excuse me, I'm getting that all backwards. Take the little, the big plank out of your eye before you try to take the speck of sawdust out of your brother's eye. He said, so don't judge. Anyway, in the Second World War, Churchill and Roosevelt were doing a press conference. Those things were happening even back then. And Roosevelt set up Churchill. Roosevelt was just diametrically in opposition 
FDR was to the British Empire to colonialism and the and imperialism that had happened. And he wanted to see England give India back to itself to be its own nation. Churchill was not opposed to that, but he saw it as a process. And we'll get into the politics of all that. But Roosevelt sets him up and asks a certain journalist who was rabidly anti-colonial to come to that press conference and to have a question to bait Churchill in the middle of the press conference. Roosevelt takes the question, and the woman stands up and says to Winston Churchill, uh, Mr. Churchill, so what are you going to do about all those Indians? And Winston thinks for a minute, and he says, well, I guess the first thing that we should do is decide. Are we talking about the brown Indians who under the benevolent rule of England have reproduced at an alarming rate? Or are we talking about the red Indians in the American West that are on the brink of extinction? And the woman sat down and that was the end of the conversation. What a brilliant comeback. How did he ever come up with that? You know, in a moment like that, especially when he was sloshed all the time. But anyway, so Churchill comes up, but here's a woman, she's trying to judge him. She, she's standing in judgment on the British Empire, while all the while what's going on is there's a plank in our eye. And it's easy to look at England and say, you bums that are you're subjugating the Indians over in India, when this was going on here. And so, you know, when you think about judgment, you know, judgment is a very precarious thing. And Jesus says, by the same standard that you judge someone else, you will be judged. And so this is one of the core truths that comes up in here. Now, here's a look at the text. What we see, first of all, is this command that is central to the Christian ethic. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings. And I want to stress that word, the failings of the weak. Hmm. We want everybody to be perfect. Like I am, right? Like you are. You're perfect. Christ's example, that's in this text. Scripture's instruction. He kind of digresses down a sideline. He quotes the Scripture, and he says, just as Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And then he says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. We'll come back to that one in a minute. So we'll see Scripture's instruction. And then we see an aspiration to aim at, as well as a bookend to the section, which is welcome one another. I'm not going to take a lot of time with that verb, welcome, today, because we've already talked about it. And we just want to remind you, when he says welcome one another, it's not just what we do for those two minutes while we're transitioning after prayer to announcements and we welcome each other. And then we go out and stab each other in the back. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about receiving. That we receive each other into our lives and into our fellowship. And we open ourselves up to one another in Christ. And we don't look down on each other. We understand that some are strong and some are weak and some have failings and some don't. Some are perfect and some are not. But together with one voice, we seek to harmonize and bring glory to God. 
as we receive one another to the glory of God. That's the bookend of the section. So it's very important we think about Christian liberty, that the core thing is this idea of receiving and welcoming and unity, that unity is important to God. Is the truth of God's Word important to God? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But is unity important to God? Yes, it is. My wife had this one, and man, it stuck with me, and that is, I remember as a kid at the dinner table, my dad was not happy with us tribal boys if we weren't getting along. That meant something to my dad. He wanted us to get along. Who is my neighbor? Luke 10, you remember the story. And so he says here, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves, but each of us please his neighbor. There are two commands. Jesus is asked a question in Luke chapter 10 by a lawyer. This is not a lawyer or an expert in American law. This is an expert in Jewish law, the Torah. And this lawyer comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Wow, that's an open question. Anybody come to you and ask you that? What do I got to do to be saved? What do I got to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, believe in me. Except he didn't. He said, what? Well, what does the law say? The guy says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and everything in you. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, Well, you never can do that. All fall short of the glory of God. So just believe in me and you're good to go. Is that what Jesus said? No. He said, Do this and you will live. That's quite an answer. How many of us have a conversation with somebody on an airplane where we're going to get into the gospel with them and we're going to share the good news of Jesus Christ and we say that? They don't teach that at evangelism seminars. Do this and you will live. Now, we can argue that Jesus is setting an impossible standard so the guy will see he's in a bunch of deep doo-doo the man tries to test Jesus. He says, who is my neighbor? Expecting that Jesus will probably say, well, as long as you just love the other Jews, you're good to go. And Jesus tells him a story we call it the Good Samaritan. And at the end of that story, Jesus says to the man, this lawyer, this Jew who knows the Torah, he says, so which one of him loved his neighbor? Was it the Levite? who going down the trail sees the man broken and beat up and battered and goes on the other side so he will be not contaminated? Or is it the priest who sees that man who is broken and battered, half dead, stripped of his clothes, and the priest walks by on the other side? And a Samaritan, this man that all the Jews think of as somebody who is pretty stinky, sees him, 
comes to him where he is. Puts him on his own donkey. Cleans his wounds. Out of his own pocket, gives the innkeeper money and says, if you have to pay anything else for this man's care, just call me and I'll make good on the debt. Which one was his neighbor? And the man rightly says, well, the one who showed him mercy. Now, what is Jesus teaching there? Who is my neighbor? Everyone. Right? Everyone. Everyone. So, with whose failings am I to endure? Just people in my family? Just people in my church? Just people in my community? With who? My neighbor. Just everyone. I want to think about hedonism for a minute. Hedonism is a belief that's always been around, but it was articulated by a guy named Epicurus. He was born on a Greek island in 350 B.C. or something like that, maybe 375 B.C. Greek island called Samos, and then he moved to the mainland where he sets up a school in Athens. Epicurus starts a belief called Epicureanism, the most common saying that we all know from Epicurean thought is this little saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Or party on, right? Party on. Eat, drink, and be merry. Have a good time. Tomorrow you're going to die. He didn't believe there were any gods. He didn't believe in Zeus. He didn't believe in any of them. And he just said, all you are is a packet of atoms. And when you die and they bury you in the ground, you're just going back to worms, and you're just going back into the dirt. So while you are here, you better seek as much pleasure as you can get. We call it hedonic thought or hedonism. Now, it's interesting, is Epicurus did not believe that sensual pleasure was the highest pleasure. Epicurus himself believed that mental pleasure... The, the intellect, the education, that if a man was truly educated and truly intellect, that was the highest form of pleasure that a man could attain to. So he stressed education to his students. He told them, go forward in thought and in intellect and knowledge, and you will find yourself. And you will find meaning and you will be pleased. But the whole thing is about pleasure. In other words, hedonic thought says this, the highest good that any man can seek is his own pleasure. The highest good that you can seek is your own pleasure. And I want us to think about this concept because that flies diametrically against what we are seeing in these verses when he says, let each one of us please who? Himself? Please who? His neighbor. We live in a hedonic culture. Now in school today, they probably aren't taught. Epicurus, they probably don't even know who he is. It doesn't come up on Disney. I haven't seen any cartoons about Epicurus. But the culture is saturated with that message. Pleasure. 
self-pleasure. Now, when you think about hedonism, hedonism is a belief that saturates our flesh. It is so appealing to the flesh that because it is so appealing to the flesh, it becomes rampant in a culture that rejects God. And it essentially seeks pleasure as the highest human ideal instead of service to others and to God. Glorifying God and others as the highest ideal to which a man can aspire. Now the outgrowth of this, if it's all about me and my pleasure, here's the outgrowth. If you get in my way, fooey on you. So hedonism views the weak as an obstacle. So I didn't mean to get pregnant, so I'm just going to kill that baby because it is not going to bring me pleasure. It's going to get in the way of my good time. I'm trying to make a career. I'm going to college. I got all these plans for myself, and now I got to deal with this baby, this weak thing in my gut. It's got to go. Or you get old and you can't walk good and you can't think good. And you're a pain to society and you're a drain. We'll put you somewhere. We'll give you a good life for a few years and we'll keep you tanked up on everything we can think of until you go the way of the birds. You're weak. You're an obstacle. Hedonic thought views the weak as an obstacle to my fulfillment. Christ and Christianity, what is Christ's view of the weak? By caring for the weak, he found his greatest fulfillment. It tells us in the scripture, he bore our infirmities. That word infirmities Infirmities is he bore our weakness. The church of Jesus Christ has always stood with Christ in justice for the oppressed, those who cannot care for themselves, and those who are weak, those who are vulnerable. The church of Jesus Christ is not about building buildings to just house comfortable people. The church of Jesus Christ is a mission organization devoted to the care and the needs of people. And so it does not view the weak as an obstacle to the fulfillment of our goal. The church views the weak as a fulfillment of our goal. And so we minister, as did Christ. This is interesting. I want you to think with me of Ezekiel 34. God is talking to the nation of Israel, and this is very pertinent to us because we are a part of his flock. He says, Lord God says to you, my flock, I am going to judge between one sheep and another. 
between the rams and the male goats. Isn't it enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of the pasture with your feet? Isn't it enough that you drink the clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Yet my flock has to feed on what your feet have trampled and drink what your feet have muddied. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Or let's just say the strong sheep and the weak sheep. Since you have pushed with flank and shoulder and you have butted all the weak ones with your horns until you scatter them all. Interesting to note cattle or other herd animals. They're going to have a long, hot day. They got moved somewhere, and they're coming to a creek or a water tank. Here's one who's been around the herd for 20 years. She's had a rough go, and she's limping. She's tired. Her tongue's hanging out. And all the other cows say to her, Oh, you go first. I've never seen that. I've never seen it. That's not the way the animal kingdom works, no matter what animal planet says. Right? What happens? The whole herd runs into the water tank. Everybody's fighting and everybody's pushing and everybody's going to get their drink first. And God is using that as an analogy, and he says, that's just the way my flock is. Or, or I put out the hay. And it's not like, oh, here comes Mama Cow, who's, she's had a rough winter, and she's getting a little thin, and she needs the best. We'll make sure she gets that. And then we'll all just get the next. Cattle don't do that. No, they all run to the first, and they all trample it in the mud and in the snow, and they fight over it, and they butt Some of them are fat and some of them are thin. Why? Not because you didn't put out enough feed. It's because they've been fighting over it. And God is using that as an illustration to us as people. And he says, that's not the way people should work. We're not just a part of the animal kingdom. We are created in the image of God. And as we are created in the image of God, God expects something of his people. And that is this, when we come to the potluck line, The lady with the wheelchair should go first. Right? The person in need, the person who is frail, who is infirm, people serve. This is what the church is all about. We live in a dog-eat-dog world, and it should not be that way when we come to church. We should care for the weak. This is the ethos of the Christian life. This is exemplified by Christ. And so he said, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, just as it is written. Oh, man, let's think about communication for a minute, because we only got a minute. He then goes into this thing about the word. Let's just look at it real quick. 
For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction through, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And then he ends with that plea, with that prayer. But let's think about communication. You know, think about this for a minute. Language is one of the greatest gifts that God gave to man. Language. But men didn't always know how to write. Men knew how to speak. I was going to make a joke about how I'm sure that that was a gift that God gave to Eve and then she taught Adam. But I'll make not that joke. It's one of the greatest gifts. Various forms of communication. There's verbal, there's nonverbal communication, there's written, and there's oral communication. We think about verbal communication. That's what we do when we talk to each other. It is very relational and it is very ordinary. It is very important. God has a lot to say about our verbal communication with each other. But it is also imprecise, and it is completely dependent on your ability to remember what was said. For most of us guys, that's not very good. Right? Our wife tells us to not forget to get a gallon of milk before we come home. What are we going to do? We're going to forget. So what do we do? We write it down. Or we have her... Text it to us. We want it in what? Writing. It's inexact. We won't talk about this with cultures that are dependent on oral histories. But think with me about some things about written communication. This is important. It is precise. It is precise. It gives us what? Instructions. For whatever was written in the former days was written for what? instruction. There again, us guys, you buy something for the kids at Christmas, what's the last thing you read before you put it together? The instructions. But they are very precise. And you get to the end. I put this thing together for my wife that we got for Amy for her birthday. And we got to the end of it and there were two washers left. What? Where are they supposed to go? In my pocket. (laughs) They were extras. I didn't read the instructions. God's given us instructions. What else is it? It is enduring. You know, they are still digging up papyri that were written within a hundred years of the life of Christ, it lasts. It endures. That's why God put it in the book. It what? It is encouraging. It's nice to have a good conversation. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to show you care for someone else by sitting and investing in their life by talking to them. Guys, our wife does love it when we come home and instead of reading the newspaper, we talk to her. That's encouraging. It is also very encouraging. When you go to the mailbox and you get something you don't get every day anymore, is a card. 
And someone sat down and took their time and they invested and they thought for a minute and they wrote a very precise, enduring, encouraging communication to you. It's written. I'm not going to look at that one because we don't have time to deal with it. Here's the end of it. You know, Paul says to Timothy that from a childhood you have known the sacred writings They are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All the writings are inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for instructing. So the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so here's the thing. God has given us an an enduring love letter to encourage us. That is his word. So may God grant, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony with one another. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have given us your word. In your word we find everything we need for life and godliness. May we heed it, may we read it, May we be encouraged by it. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song together? We believe in God the Father. We believe in Christ the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We are the church and we stand as one. Holy, holy, holy is our to
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your love letter to us, Lord, that you have written and the truths that are found there in it. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we reflected on your word today, I was, I, I, I was surprised by my own pride, my desire to be first, my desire to, to look out for myself instead of look out for those around me. Lord, I ask for you for, for forgiveness for that. But I wonder, too, Lord, if there's others that are here in this room that, that are all about themselves instead of looking towards their family. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would change us, mold us into your image, that we may edify one another, that we may build one another up, that we may encourage one another, that we may do it until the day that you call us home. Lord, we thank you for the church. We thank you for this body. Encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name.